Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. We spent the last month or so covering the coronavirus and the factors led to its spread across the globe. If you've listened to the last two episodes, you've heard us discuss the connection between our supply chains to China and our inability to produce basic medical supplies. Right, and that plays into a bigger question about the state of the virus in Asia-Pacific, Europe, and the Middle East, which we covered here. And an even bigger conversation, which is how the Chinese Communist Party obscured the origins of the virus. You can remember, we talked about that here with Tom Cotton, how it hampered the global response and just the national security implications writ large of what this virus has done both here to us at home, but about the way it's going to make us approach our future problems. Now that we've set the stage, what we want to do in this episode and moving forward is say, what's going to happen next? So in that spirit, we brought on Matt Stoller, a great friend of the show, and he actually was on our third episode, which was titled Silicon Valley versus DC. It came out last summer. Definitely go back and check it. But now Matt has done a couple of things since then. Firstly, he released a book. It's called Goliath. Go check it out. It's really interesting. But he also helped launch a new organization called the American Economic Liberties Project. So on this episode, we brought Matt on to talk about the economy, talk about now that we set the stage of coronavirus, what are the various different structural factors that we're going to have to reckon with given there's a recession on? How are those going to look? What Matt is really good at is about distilling so many of these things, both from a right and a left perspective and saying, what was the problem structurally in our economy in the past? What's it going to look like in the future as a result of the most recent bailout package and just the general effect? So we look at supply chains. We look at this bailout versus the bailout in 2008. We look at investment during the bubble, like WeWork, some of the things that he had criticized and about what he called counterfeit capitalism in the age of WeWork. And we look at antitrust. That's something that Matt literally wrote the book on and how lack of antitrust enforcement ahead of this crisis might have set us up for economic failure afterwards, what the future of that movement itself might be. But all of that policy said, we had a great little rabbit hole um, about the future of the American left and its ability to engage on these issues, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, what's interesting about Matt is he's a domestic policy guy. He openly says that he's not a foreign policy expert by any means. But what he was doing a really great job of doing was tying these structural factors he was discussing to the foreign policy context. When he's talking about supply chains, he isn't just saying we can't make things in America anymore. He's saying there are policies that the Chinese Communist Party have implemented since we opened up to the WTO in the 2000s that have led manufacturing to shift away. He talks about how with the actual coronavirus itself... He's had to reckon with the fact that so much of this crisis was caused by the inability of international institutions to really reckon with this issue. So he gets into this sort of difficult discussion from his perspective, because as he points out, he's on the left, but the left in his, in his eye has a difficult job dealing with the China component of this issue because of the racial aspects, sort of what he calls woke politics. Yeah, I mean, as I think many of you know, that that's music to some of our ears, or my ears, in particular, but the whole entire discussion, the rabbit hole, all of the policy, it's really worth listening to. So why don't we take a listen? Matt Stoller, welcome back to The Realignment. Yeah, hey, so thanks for having it's been me. a while since we had you on. You were on our third episode, Silicon Valley versus DC. There's been I guess a lot of events that have happened since then, and the most important of which is the COVID-19 outbreak. We brought you on 
not only because of the fact that we enjoy uh, fellow populist uh, mm-hmm. agitation on Twitter, but also because of the fact that you've been really prescient on a lot of these issues. You were writing about supply chains back in 2011, and T.A. Frank had a generous profile in Vanity Fair that was talking about how people like you were sort of talking about this issue before it was cool. So just... Just oh, stop, English, really. stop, you're too much. It's just a funny <laughs> introduction that you get here. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be all <laughs> yeah. tough, tough questions from here on out. But just to start off, really, because what we want to talk about today are sort of the economic predictions and economic effects that are going to happen after the crisis, because obviously everyone now knows that we have a medical supply issue. So I think people are wondering, what's it going to take to improve the situation? So let's start there. How... Did America get to this COVID-19 supply chain medical crisis? And how are we going to move forward? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, the so there's a, there's a lot of different ways to understand what happened with the coronavirus. But but the simplest, a simple one for, you know, politically is everything that is important, we make a good chunk of it or an essential part of it in China. Right. That's just the simplest way to explain it. Um, not not everything, uh, not all things, but but most things. And um, so everything from cars to, you know, specialized chemicals that go into missiles to, um, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredients, a lot of uh, personal protective equipment, that kind of thing. And the reason that we make uh, that there's so much uh, capacity in China and that we're so dependent on it. Uh, it's because of a series of policy choices uh, over the last 25 years to move a lot of our productive capacity to China. So sort of an explicit attempt to export capital from the United States to the the, the Chinese. And there are a number of reasons for that. But uh, but this this was the, you know, trade policy, banking policy, um, antitrust policy, just kind of a whole series of choices were largely designed to first domestically roll up power, roll up uh, productive capacity in through lots of our industries. So you have monopolies in lots of different industries. And when you, that way that looks in a manufacturing context is that, you know, you have a couple of different supply chains to make the same product or competitive, uh, you know, uh, uh, products that are, that is in the same product line, but they're competitive. You roll them up into a monopoly, all of a sudden you have one supply chain and then it's much easier to move that over to uh, to China, uh, so it's change in antitrust policy, then a change in trade policy to enable that. So that's what mm-hmm. happened, and um, mm-hmm. I wrote about this in 2011 because you know we started to see really serious problems with resiliency, not just with China, but but with the um, the earthquake, the Fukushima earthquake in in Japan that uh, precipitated a run on videotapes in Hollywood because all of our videotapes apparently were made in northern Japan near the earthquake zone. And um, and so and so there was a, this was a, what was called an industrial supply crash uh, or near crash. And eventually, you know, it was sort of caught it in time. So it didn't crash the whole economy, the whole global economy. But it really did slow things down for, for a little bit. And it did illustrate that we have all of these sole source dependencies uh, and products, everything from microchips to vitamin C. And um, so when you look at that, and you're like, oh, wow, we have this very. Um, sort of hyper-efficient, but but also really fragile global system of production, and a lot of it goes through a geopolitical competitor slash enemy, 
you know, that's really dangerous. And so it's not like, it's not rocket science to say, hey, that's something that we should be paying attention to and be concerned about. And then, you know, a lot of us who pay attention to China and, you know, look at, at potential shocks, um, you know, one of the big ones is, is pandemics. That's traditionally been a dangerous uh, thing for the world. And that has traditionally changed the way that people trade, the way that people fi do finance, just you know, even temporarily. So that's, you know, a lot of us when they, when, you know, in that, in that group uh, who are paying, who pay attention to China saw the pandemic coming. And then if you studied, uh, if you've studied, you know, supply chains, looked at the, some of the problems that we have, or just talk to supply chain engineers or people who make things and sell it, then you would, you know, you, you, you walk that, you walk through the, some of the scenarios and it's not that hard to predict that we'd have really serious problems as we... Indeed, so Matt, right. I mean, one of the things that we I think we've all been talking about, that's a familiar story now to some of the podcast listeners, and the real debate is about what we do about it and what that actually looks like. I mean, I recently saw you put this out, but a Chamber of Commerce Shanghai survey of U.S. firms in China says that the majority of these U.S. firms do not say they have any plans whatsoever to repatriate American supply, uh, supply chains back to the United States. And at the same time, 71% of American 71 of Americans think that American companies should pull back manufacturing in China, according to a recent Harris poll. So to execute, I guess, the popular will in this case, what needs to be done? Are there congressional, are there, what can Congress realistically More do? More hearings. Yeah, Those always like, work. Because what I think a lot of people are, are used to hearing is more hearings. We'll have more hearings or, oh, well, we'll investigate the matter or the DOD will put out a report. I mean, it seems like a pretty dire thing at this point. What can actually be done? You guys are forgetting about sternly worded letters. <laughs> right, right. And podcasts. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's true. All, oh, yeah, podcasts and, and tweets. I mean, there's all these tools that you are leaving out of the toolbox. Um, uh, look, I mean, basically what you're going to have to do is, is uh, you're going to have to change the rules, right? I mean, that's not um, – it, this is not rocket science, right? I mean, we're going to have to have a much more capable and active state. That's very basic. The, the, the reason that the Chinese, the CCP is able to pull, you know, using predatory tactics, they're able to basically start to dominate American corporations and Western corporations in general is because part of that libertarian turn in the, the last 25 years has been to defang the state, right? Every state but the Chinese one. And that, that way, it, there's no governance going on. There's no public governance. So, you know, that's why, you know, Congress got used to it, right? That's why con the only thing Congress does is hold hearings or write sternly worded letters. It's because they don't actually know that they're supposed to, you know, govern. They're like someone, should, you know, basically Congress, all a lot of what Congress does is, is write letters to other people saying, you know, somebody should really do something about our problems, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, part of what has to happen, and I think that that's starting to happen with the pandemic, is they have to start looking to each other and be like, oh, yeah, we were elected to do something about our problems. Like, we were elected to govern. And um, I think you saw with the small business financing pro problem, like, mostly what the Fed, tend, what the Congress tends to do is they tend to kick the, the problem to someone else, usually the Fed, and say, hey, can you print, print, print our way out of this problem, right? Print money. And what you're you're seeing for the first time with the small business lending uh, program is that the the Congress is saying to the Small Business Administration, "Hey, can you print money to get us out of this problem? This problem, and that's that's different. You know, that's new. It's not it's not that different, right? It's still like a financially oriented view, but it is actually saying, "Hey, can 
a an, an administrative agency over which you know the the president has authority like it's a democratic it's not like the fed and over which congress has authority can you directly get and touch the institutions in our in our economy the small businesses right not just um you know printing dollars to trade in capital markets that's a really that's a really significant change uh, i think mm. just in terms of congress's self-conception and actually gallup uh the gallup sh poll shows that like weirdly enough congressional approval rating went up like to 30 percent which is the highest it's been since 2009 right as it turns out people don't like congress because congress doesn't do anything and what members of congress have taken from that is the public doesn't want them to do anything because they don't trust them but in fact what the public is saying is we want you to do stuff and we don't like that you're not doing it and that's, that's a good why segue to sort of our next section which is sort of the congressional response has been the broad bailouts programs the economic stimulus i as anyone who follows you will take it you aren't particularly happy with that response so how do you reconcile the public support for congress with what i think you would argue is a particularly ineffective and destructive response from the government itself well, look, I mean, don't ask me to be consistent. I, I feel like I should be, you know, I mean, I do political work, so I, I sh I'm allowed to be a hypocrite. Um, uh, uh, no, I mean, I think that, that people wanted Congress to do something and Congress did something. And it is, you know, I think in the, in the long term, you know, people are going to judge our policymakers by the, the outcomes. But in the in the short term, like, they, you know, they really, they acted and they acted to get money to people who were unemployed. They acted to get money to hospitals and to states and to small businesses and to Wall Street. Now, I think over time, people are going to be pretty unhappy with the overall um, restructuring of power. But uh, but they liked that Congress did something and they liked that they saw pretty immediate benefits. I mean, that the really, it's really extraordinary if you look not just at the, I think the unemployment is a big deal, uh, but also, you know, 300 and you know, $42 billion lent out to 1.7 million businesses, which is about 20% of all business, small businesses in America who employ someone. And that's pretty extraordinary just within a couple of weeks. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's, that's kind of what's, what's happening is people are actually seeing something coming out of the government that they, they appreciate it. Um, they won't like in aggregate what's happening, but that's, that's a big I deal. I like that you brought up 2009 as sort of the other point when Congress was doing things and was sort of well received. But I think the problem is if you're a policymaker, if you're a member of the establishment, you should remember that the next year you had the Tea Party wave. You then had, you know, Trump's presidency um, in 2015. You had Bernie Sanders. So if, if today's situation is similar to 2009, do you think that there's going to be any sort of takeaways that we should have from what happened after the response to the 2008 financial crisis? Yeah, so I would say that that if you look at American politics, usually American politics, you know, you have one party that's dominant and another party that occasionally will win an election, but basically operates within the framework of the of the dominant party. So Eisenhower was a Republican president, but he was largely operating in a Democratic New Deal context. Um, and in some ways, you could argue Bill Clinton was a Democratic president, but was operating in a Reaganite frame, right? And that's just generally how American politics works. But in um, since 2006, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2014, 2016, and 2018, we've had change elections every year, except one that was 2012, but that's largely because Romney was running as the status quo. 
Um, mm. So that's, ama that's amazing and weird, right? And what it shows is that Americans don't like the status quo and they keep voting for change. So my read on the Tea Party um, is actually that it was a little bit, it was part of a of an overall frustration with political uh, political elites and mismanagement of our of our economy. That's that was you saw it in two thousand and six, you saw it in two thousand and eight, and and you saw it you know in two thousand and eighteen, just as you saw it in the during the Tea Party wave. And just people are are unhappy. They don't feel like whoever's in charge. They don't feel like um, they have control over their lives uh, or they have control over their communities. And I think you're going to continue mm -hmm. to see that until. Either we, you know, lose our democracy entirely, and voting becomes irrelevant or not possible, or we um, we take back our our government and are able to gain control over our communities um, and our and our society once again. Let me get back. Just I want to answer the question that you asked, which is, what can we do about reshoring supply chains? And I'll just mm -hmm. try yeah. to do that really quickly because I want to get to that. Um, so. The basic problem that we have in America in terms of, of supply chains is that we have what are called power buyers. So this would be like a Walmart or an Amazon in the retail space. And they, if you try to sell into retail, like you have to go through those companies and they will take all your margin, right? And then they will also force you to produce in China. And that's actually true across most of our areas of the economy. We just don't, you know, unless you're in the like medical area, you wouldn't see it. But like CVS and the hospitals, they have combined their bargaining power into what are called group purchasing organizations and they buy all of our medicine and all of our you know a lot of our medical devices and whatnot on behalf of hospitals and so they take all the margin out of that or a lot of the margin out of that and they force a lot of it abroad and so part of what you have to do is you have to change trade policy to say we're going to require that you make a bunch of stuff in america so we're going to require that the va buy made in america um medication and you're gonna to have to define what made in America means in a more aggressive way. But part of it is also you have to break the power of these power buyers, right? So you have more decentralized buying and that way there's a lot more margin just in production. You know, and then you can use tariffs and a whole bunch of other things. But like what you need is it, there's there's a you basically move the the you you undo the the policies that we made in the from the nineties onward and then you facilitate moving the you use tariffs and you use domestic financing to facilitate the the movement back of some of that productive capacity. So that that's what I would Quick do. Quick interjection. There. I think um, Sagar and I could put on our libertarian hats and then just say, but Matt, the Buy America provisions mm. and the other policies you're talking about, Sagar, you should jump in on this, are going to increase prices, right? Isn't that the typical sort of response? Yeah, they're like, they're, they're, this would increase prices. Matt, haven't you ever heard of economies of scale? That's how we deliver cheaper prices to the American consumer. I mean, obviously we're making fun of it, but it's a, it's some, some, it's a fair some, response. It's a fair response. What is the response to that? You're right. I hadn't thought about that. I guess we should just give up. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, it's it, it's it's all it's all just like it's all just a, a question of of um, of whether you're willing to like you, we may be paying cheaper prices for certain you know for certain implements that we're pulling in from China, or we might not. I mean, it's not always obvious that the prices are are lower. Um, but but ultimately, you know, nothing. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And if we decide to move the production to China and we decide to consolidate uh, our production into a hyper-efficient system, assuming that it is, and I don't actually buy that it that it's a better that it's cheaper in the long run. But let's just say for the thought experiment, it is. It's also uh, far more vulnerable, right? So maybe you'll get cheaper gloves, 
right? Except in a pandemic when you can't get any gloves, right? right? And so you are going to be paying. You are going to be paying, but you're just going to be paying when it really matters. I mean, the other thing is that you see massive weight, like someone's one person's cheap price is another person's lost income. So what we see is uh, this: the fetish for low prices is also a fetish for low wages, and that's that's a bad, that's a that's a that's a bad dynamic for a society. You don't want to. And you know, wages. Matt, I mean, right. I think that's such a good point, and it it does actually explain so much of what's happening in our politics today. A realignment, if you yeah. will. Yeah, and yet, you know, if you see what is a, if you see what's happening, like I said, in terms of popular sentiment around moving supply chains back to the United States. But you don't see any of that sentiment amongst the elite class. So our politics, as you've laid it out, it's we keep voting for change and the elite class continues to deliver more of the same. I mean, the coronavirus crisis, it seems as if it's unlike anything that we've ever lived before. And yet so much of your bailout coverage said that so much of this was reminiscent of 2009. Is this just another moment in which the American public has a growing recognition that something is wrong in our economy, wrong in our foreign policy, wrong in our society, and the elite class says that they're going to do something about it, but doesn't actually do much. What do you think the trajectory there is? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily totally buy the idea that the elite doesn't get it. I do think that people, like the corporate world has not, they don't have plans to move supply chains. But I, I do think that like there are a lot of members of Congress that understand that the supply chain problem is real. I've seen a total change in the national security world, like in the last, you know, three or four years. Now, I'm not sure that they're set up to really aggressively fight uh, corporate power to do it, but they all kind of are like, wait a second, we can't make anything, and 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 we're totally dependent on China. Like this is this is messed up, right? And you've seen, you know, you saw like I think Mark Warner and a bunch of uh, members, Chris Murphy, and then some Republicans pass a bill to like finance a competitor to Huawei or finance competitive financing to Huawei. Like you're seeing more interest in in industrial policy from you know Marco Rubio. Um, you're seeing like what's what's the 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 elites are are is our elites learning right? I mean they 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 are, um, and so I'm not totally persuaded that it's like it's fruitless, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, I don't think we've seen that, that kind of like that magic moment where someone is like, okay, this is how we're going to lead. And, and here's a program and it's going to work. And then people sort of courage is Daniel Ellsberg once said courage is contagious. And that's right. Success is contagious. Mm-hmm. I think the closest you're seeing is Rubio's small business lending program. Um, uh, but that's, you know, so I, I don't, I'm not totally convinced, but like, where does this go? I do think that there's a huge problem in the judiciary, in the antitrust world. Like the Trump administration is like cross pressured with a bunch of Wall Street uh, types and the progressives are a total mess. And, you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, so there's, there, the, the country is like not coordinated to go in any particular direction. And I think that if you, if we right. don't figure out a way to gain control of our corporations and our financial system, then you'll just see, it won't be that like, it'll just be the status quo. It'll be much, much, much more consolidated than the status quo. You'll see hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of small businesses just disappear. Um, you know, you'll see like the, the, our newspapers will disappear. You'll see, you know, a, a country dominated by just a few giants. 
And I, I mean, it's a very dangerous, we're sort of in a dangerous moment. And I, I don't have a lot of hope that in the next year, we're going to make the right decisions. But I, I do think that like five years out or 10 years out, I, I do think we can actually kind of make those to that, decisions. I've been struggling with this too. I mean, both a feeling of despair, like, oh, there's none of, not a lot of the action is meeting the political moment. But at the same time, I mean, we right. saw Marco Rubio's Paycheck Protection Program become the default position of the U.S. Congress within two weeks. And we're talking about, like you said, I mean, direct loans of SBA, like SBA funded loans to 20% of small businesses in this country. Of course, the circumstances are crazy, but there's no putting that back into the bottle. So, I mean, is that maybe a cause for optimism that that that, that, that close, that soon, this program could become a bipartisan one that the Congress is squabbling over the conditions in order to put money in, but not necessarily where the program itself is bad. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a great, um, it's, I mean, the more I look at it, it's like, it's this amazing opportunity because because the, the Paycheck Protection Program is three things. It's it's a financing program to help a lot of distressed businesses, but it's also a, an anti-monopoly program. And it's it because, you know, small businesses compete with big businesses. So by supporting small businesses, what you're doing is you're you're create you're sustaining competitive markets, you're protecting competitive markets. Um, and then it's also a private equity reform program because it has restrictions against private equity companies getting that money. I mean, you can get it if you're financed by private equity, but you can't get it if you're controlled by private equity. And so what a lot of private equity owned companies are doing is they're changing their charters so that they aren't controlled by the private equity fund just so they can get access to the money. So you're seeing like the private equity industry, I don't want to say that this is like, I don't want to overstate it, but like they are actually changing some of the ways they do things just so they can get access to some of this money. So it's like actually pretty extraordinary the what the uh, impacts of this program are. It's just that that it's not it's not meeting the moment. It's not enough, mm-hmm. right? So I want to take a step back um, and sort of sort of look at the economy itself and the way that's going to look like going forward. So you you had you had, you had a very you know persuasive case last fall that companies like WeWork, these sort of venture capital fueled boondoggles, were sort of symptomatic of a sort of deeper issue within American capitalism. I think you said it was counterfeit capitalism. Um, so one of the things that's so clearly happened so quickly after the crisis has been that investment is just sort of the investment spigot is turned off, right? Like we're not living in a world where you know charismatic founders with unclear skill sets are able to just sort of get all this money and create you know real estate scams there wasn't really a scam but sort of perpetually money losing real estate companies so what do you think <laughs> you think you, <laughs> i guess yeah we don't want to do the we work debate too much but the point is is that how do you think um do you think the crisis has sort of solved the counterfeit capitalism issue you were highlighting Well, that's a good question. Uh, right, because there's no more funny money. Like, there's there's no, there, there's, I mean, you know, if you listen to sort of Scott Galloway's take on this, you know, um, SoftBank Vision Fund is over, right? There isn't going to be this vast amount of capital that's just offered cheaply. Um, and you could sort of say that's a good thing because you're not going to have any more WeWorks. But I think part of the concern would be is that, you know, there are people... Right, you critique them um, from the venture capital side that say that you know building the future is going to require investment. So we're sort of in this sort of double bind here. I'm just curious what you think about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like the 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 counterfeit capitalism was directed at a particular practice of WeWork, but also a, lo a lot of companies that were doing what WeWork was doing, which is predatory pricing or or pricing pricing the the your goods below cost. Because capitalism is premised on the idea that you take a bunch of inputs, you put them together, and you actually have something that's more valuable than the inputs. Otherwise, it, it's a waste of, re you know, otherwise it's it's a bad system because you're just destroying value. And so when you price things under their actual cost or value, you're destroying value. And we used to have laws against predatory pricing, and we don't enforce them or we got rid of them. So that was the specific, uh, like, practice that I was, that I was talking about with counterfeit capitalism. I do... I think that that like that this sort of era of these like WeWork type of of white elephant companies is over. Like yes, the SoftBank Vision Fund that era is gone. So I'm not um, I'm not a um, but I but we haven't re-implemented like predatory pricing laws, and it's not obvious to me that uh, that the cheap money is gone, right? So so the Federal Reserve going into junk bonds to me is really disturbing because that's the federal government itself backing like this cheap money. And the cheap money is largely, my guess, you know, is that they're going to try to use it for roll-ups. I know Apollo What's is sort of thinking yeah, around that. Let's, let's explain some of these terms, Matt. What, what exactly is the implication of what you're saying? So a roll-up is when uh, a, a big pot of money, which is called a private equity fund, where they get a lot of money from like pension funds and or insurance companies or or um, or investors, they get a big pot of money, and then they they borrow more money, and then they'll buy a bunch of companies in one industry and put that into one company. So it's like you have a a bunch of different, say, you know, gyms in a city, and you buy them all, and you put them into one company. So you now have a monopoly of gyms in that city. I'm not saying that's a real example. I'm just saying that's that's an example of what mm -hmm. a roll up would be. Uh, and so, you know, what the opportunity now in, in with all of these companies that are distressed is that you can, if you have cash, which some private equity funds do, then they can go in and they can buy these companies cheap. Or if you're a, a monopoly or a big company and you have access to funding, you can go in and you can buy these companies cheap. And so the cheap money is going to, is going to have without like restrictions on what you can do with it is gonna it's gonna go in a different direction, but I'm not sure that that ends like the the predatory pricing model. It, unless, you have to end that with law. You can't you can't end it with just like yeah, it's a good segue really to I mean what your your major expertise in this, which is antitrust. And I think one of the major questions here is right. what is the antitrust debate? And we covered it early on in this podcast. What does it look like? after the coronavirus, because one of the things that you warned about in particular as a result of the bailout package was that this could actually cause some of the mass consolidation, some of the biggest consolidations in American history, exactly where you're talking about with cheap money, you have these private equity and distressed assets, distressed assets and, and small businesses out there that are suffering, able to sell it, maybe even take a loss that we could see a wholly different country. What should the antitrust debate look like after coronavirus? Because it's it's largely been missing from the initial conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and and to my endless frustration, it's been missing. You know, I mean, we need a much more and much broader uh, anti-monopoly um, movement. I mean, that's and it's gotta. I mean, I'm a left winger. You guys know that, but unfortunately, I think the 
you know, the progressive side is not, uh, does not think about corporate power, just doesn't think about it. And I think some of the Biden people do. So weirdly enough, the centrist in the Democratic Party think about Quick it. Interruption, quick interruption, because I think what you're saying is fascinating, but it's not going to make sense to a lot of our listeners. Yeah. What do you mean progressives don't care about corporate power, right? Isn't Bernie, I'm, I'm playing a sort of informed, uninformed person, but Bernie Sanders' whole thing is, you know, democratic socialism. That seems like it's anti-corporate. So what do you mean when you say that? Well, you know, it's funny. It's, I, I, I feel crazy. Um, it's like, um, <laughs> That's because you're under oh, quarantine right now. Yeah, that's yeah. separate from your policy abilities. <laughs> no, no, that's true. I, I, um, no, I, uh, I, you know, the Bernie and, and Warren more, I'll take Bernie, like Bernie represented this largely a labor centric view of, of politics, right? It was sort of a mix between you know, the traditional labor left and then the like the kind of new woke left, right? And, you know, the labor centric view is that the workers produce everything. But the problem with that, like cent the, the labor centric view is that they don't look at the other side of the question. They don't look at corporate power itself. They just look at big business, small business, whatever. We just want labor to have more bargaining power against, against you know, the, the boss. And that's why I went like their problem with China, what happened with China is not, we're now dependent on China for a whole bunch of goods. It's China undermined a lot of good jobs in the last 20 years. It's not a, it's not it, like, I agree with that, right? I think we all agree with that, but it's like, it's a much broader national security problem as well as just the jobs problem. Like producing, yeah. producing stuff, being able to operate in markets, being able to run businesses. Like that's not something that progressives that Bernie's side of the world actually thinks about or really cares about. They have some, they make, they do some hand waves to that. Like they do talk about breaking up banks. They talk about credit unions. You know, they talk about, you know, some of these things. But when you saw the coronavirus, like that was a really clarifying moment for me. But I also think for a lot of people, it was like, what did Bernie, like, and what did that movement want? They wanted more payments for the, for the unemployed, right? That's really what they wanted. And mm -hmm. so to them, like the, the small business stuff, doesn't really make any sense. They are just like, I don't understand. That's just stuff for business, right? Now I can explain, you know, and they're, they'll hand wave the anti, about antitrust. They'll hand wave about like, you know, we're not happy with corporate power, but like the way that like Bernie goes after Jeff Bezos, he doesn't say this guy's in control of a lot of our commerce and that's bad. He does a lot of things that are dangerous. He doesn't let people start businesses. He, you know, it, no, for Bernie, it's like Jeff Bezos is worth a hundred billion dollars and he pays his workers starvation wages. That's it. It's, that's that's the mm -hmm. whole frame, right? And that's, so the, to me, that's just like, that's not actually caring about the structure of markets or corporate power. That's just raise the wages of your employees, which is a good thing, but it's just kind of like a very small part of the overall problem. And the, the way you can such, tell- yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's yeah, such a good insight, you know, as somebody who also spends some time with the progressive left um, as in part of my other job which is that there is very little thinking about market structure. And as you said, I mean, the chief objection like to Amazon would be the wages that they pay their workers and not necessarily their supply chains and how that would affect the concept or I mean, how it affected a nation because, you know, there's there's not really a lot of thinking about nations and nation states, which is something we've covered here on the podcast. I think it goes to the real question of is the and I know that you you have been asked this so many times over the last couple of weeks, but is is that a is that a capacity that the progressive left is capable 
of developing in future debates? Do you think that the, that it is an actual nascent thing that they'll be able to pick up on, or is it something that the right will continue to lead on? You know, it's a really important question, and I don't have an answer, and I don't actually think it's answerable right now. Um, but if I had to guess, what I would say is that, you know, the there is, I think that we are at the beginning of a schism in the progressive movement, right? And I saw this, you know, I think with the, when Biden released that ad about China and Trump, right, where, where Biden accuses Trump of being soft on China, the reaction from progressives was largely, how dare you do this, you racist, right? Because the progressive, they're torn between their like wokeness and their their sort of vision of what a good society. Well, they're not, I don't know if they are even torn. There, there's a, you know, the, what for for a lot of progressives, China isn't a country. It's just a referent for like domestic debates over identity. And to add to that though, um, because I sort of engaged in these debates too, there's also this completely useless obsession with 20th century foreign policy. As in there's, there's, and what I liked about your framing of China being a national security question at the economic policy level is that you're pointing out, hey, like there are very important implications in the 2020s for a hegemonic, you know, authoritarian China interacting in the economic scene of our supply chains. Mm. Yet when you talk with leftists online, I don't mean leftists in a disparaging way, I mean with, you know, uh, Rose Twitter, they will say, well, the United States bombs countries, the United States did this thing in Iran, the United States did this thing in the 1980s. There's a, there's a real failure, I think, to reckon with the reality that, you know, China is a pure competitor um, great power and that sort of approaching them as if everything's about, you know, subservient post-colonial powers is just completely unproductive. And it's just frustrating to see that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, the way I put it is it's like a movement of art critics, not a movement of political um, actors. Um, and, I, and which is because it's like the reality is, you know, power is a thing. Right. And, you know, the the you can look at the Vietnam War, you can look at Iraq, you can look at like a lot of, of behavior from the United States that was abhorrent and immoral and profoundly immoral, right? Um, and, I, and I do think it's critical to look at those, you know, to look at what, what we've done and to take responsibility for it. But you also have to look at, you know, the, the broader context. And the broader context is after World War II, American policymakers, largely whom were New Dealers, said, you know what? We don't want to have another world war. That seems like a bad thing to do. So we're going to set up a system that's multilateral and America is going to guarantee security through a, an aggressive military presence and we're going to bind Europe to to we're going to bind Europe together through the, you know, what eventually became the EU and we're going to have an alliance, a military alliance with Japan. And like that structure worked, right? It didn't, you know, it it didn't we didn't have another. It still world technically war. works, right? Mm -hmm. There's where there aren't great power wars anymore. Europe's like there's a reason why Europe and Asia are the most peaceful they've ever been. Um, so you could critique those individual level yeah. interventions, but the broader structure, I think, is one you could say it was successful. It, it right, and it, and and I think you saw things like like Obama coordinated the response to Ebola, 
right? You can say, oh my gosh, look at all the drone strikes, right? Which, you know, I think is, I don't do foreign policy, but like, I think you could legitimately say, like I met some guy in Pakistan whose family was killed by a drone and I was like, he's just like a farmer. And it was just like, oh, great. The CIA, some CIA bureaucrat murdered your family. And I asked him, I was like, do you hate America? He's like, well, now I do. Um, and it was just like, that That makes, you know, he came to Congress and we, you know, we did, did put on a briefing for him. He's just like a farmer, right? That's a terrible thing to do, but then so you also have to recognize, okay, so then they're they're also coordinating the Ebola response, and that's also a thing that happens. So it's not that, I'm not saying that the left is like wrong, I'm saying they're not in the conversation because they're not actually taking seriously the reality of, of geopolitics. And I think that's what you find frustrating too, where it's like, you're not even having a conversation, right? You're just having like a, like you're just having an, a, a debate over aesthetics and it's very annoying. Right. It's not they're not even relevant. It feels like a passion and place. That's why like, when like I came out, place. it does. It does. And it's like when I come out and I say things about China and I'm like, this is really dangerous. What what the, the CCP is doing. They don't have a way of even understanding the argument. They just don't have a way of understanding it to them. They they're just, you know, either they're like, oh, the World Health Organization, it's multilateral. Therefore, it must be good. Or they. Um, they just have this like reflexive need to bow down before Europe, which is embarrassing and annoying. Or they, um, uh, or they just think, oh, China, China, that's not white. Therefore, any critique of China or the Chinese government is, um, is just right. racist. And the best part, Matt, right? as you right. pointed out, is that that's actually an explicit strategy by the Chinese government to conflate criticism of the CCP with you know, with Chinese populations across the world, and it's it's one that you know a lot of people are being fooled into into playing into because they're afraid of political correctness. Well, right, and and just and also like keep in mind like Wall Street really is pushing this narrative too, right? And and there are Republicans pushing it as well. Like, and this this is not a, just a left progressive thing, but it's like mm. the alliance between Wall Street and like certain neo neoliberals in the Republican Party. And like people on the progressive side is real. I don't think it's necessarily explicit, but it but it's real. And I think one of the things that's been surprising to me in the really over the last week, and it's since Biden released that ad, is the level of like public vitriol towards me and towards people that make this argument. People I know who have gone like who have said, you know, they've now been like, oh, you know, you say nice things about Josh Hawley. You notice that Tucker Carlson says interesting things. You know, now you're saying that like we can't that like this ad wasn't racist. It turns out you're going down like a very dark alley, and and that's that and that that's that would be a very a very nice way of of characterizing the criticism. Largely, the criticism is is just you know you're racist and you're a neocon and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but there is there is another side to it, which is that a lot of progressives um, are, tell me privately that they are very unhappy with with this strange woke turn and the basically the you know ethnic nationalism that 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 the left is is engaging in they don't realize they're engaging in it but when you just say yes all asian americans and asian people everywhere are china right you're actually engaging in a in a very weird like ethnocentric view of nationhood and identity right um which right. they don't like actually understand but like that's what they're doing so there's been a and I think that this might be the beginning of a real schism in the progressive world. 
because the progressive world is very passive aggressive and people in the progressive world always like to talk to each other as if we're all allies and we all agree on everything. And then afterwards they will call your funders and say, oh, we're, we're really offended at what that person said. That person actually doesn't understand my struggle or whatever it is. But I do think that there's like a deep reluctance to actually just acknowledge that people don't don't always agree on stuff and to have and like hash it out. It's something that mm -hmm. conservatives do actually pretty well. Like you guys have more open forums to just hash out ideas and to like fight with each other. That's like an okay thing to do in the conservative movement. I mean, I'm sure I'm over romanticizing it, but that's like, <laughs> I just it's noticed that it's a free process. exchange of ideas. It's fundamental to yeah. a free society. Yeah, exactly. But but it's it's just I have a different I just like when I talk to conservatives it's just like a different vibe where it's like when I talk to progressives just disagreeing is like a mortal offense but when I talk to conservatives it's like it's okay to it's okay to disagree um you know in in you know I mean I probably am over romanticizing because you know you guys know I'm a Democrat so we know we're gonna disagree so right but it's like I do think that that the progressive world is having this schism and I think it's because there really are profound disagreements and you know they're they're like used to being able to intimidate everyone by saying you're racist all the time about anything and that game works but you know and it works because like the funding structures and the organizing structures are very cloistered and insular but like bernie getting smashed and elizabeth warren getting smashed and both of them being thoroughly humiliated and then doing whatever wall street wanted with the bailouts and Biden, with this like super clumsy, lazy, weird approach to politics, winning the black vote, that I think really shook the progressive world um, in a way that's like, and the pandemic, it's like really shaken the progressive world. So maybe there's a schism happening. And I, yeah. so that's my hope. We saved the most important for, uh, section for last. When we said we were having you on the podcast today, people said rather gleefully on Twitter, that we had to ask you about the new polling that shows that Americans are happier with tech companies. Um, so now that I've dunked on you um, on the, <laughs> this podcast feed, what, what's your sort of response? I'm just sort of curious, right? Because sort of tech companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, places like Zoom that, you know, are justifiably playing a huge role in our sort of shelter-in-place economy, they're obviously sort of in a good spot. So what do you think the effect of this sort of moment is going to have on the long-term debate when it comes to um, tech power and the sort of tech lash that has sort of gone on right now? Well, I think there's been like a basic, you know, con at the heart of the the, the tech lash narrative, which is like they fr they make the argument that people like, you know, who are critics of monopoly power are critics of technology itself. And that's not true. So it's like people are like, oh man, you really dislike technology. Like you don't like Google and Facebook and Zoom, but it's like actually Zoom is not, I've never made a point, I've never argued that there's any problem with Zoom. And Zoom is actually a really good example of a good product in a competitive market, right? And that's like an example of, of, of a market structure that I think is useful. Um, now, obviously I think there are problems with like you know the the way that a lot of it is is, is goes through China, but like that's, right. a, that's a separate area, you know. I and I think people are smart enough to understand that there's a difference between uh, a, a technology, right, search technology, and the the specific the particular business model and political model that Google uses to have control over that technology. And I think that that's true for all these guys. People can distinguish between, you know, 
flight and American Airlines and a baggage fee, right? Then it's not the same thing. People are not stupid. So I think if you um, we if we have like leaders, I mean, this is really just like a political question whether we're going to have a debate over what these guys are doing or not. And I think like part of what's happening because you know I think you saw the collapse of the progressive side in the the you know Bernie and Warren like you know that really left a vacuum in terms of of merger policy and, and antitrust policy so that that debate hasn't happened for a variety of reasons democrat like democrats in the house Nancy Pelosi has shut down the democrats in the house which is really weird so there's no antitrust subcommittee anymore and you know the Klobuchar is like auditioning to be the vice president so there's no there's no she's the head antitrust subcommittee person mm-hmm. for the Democrats in the Senate. That's why I bring her up. So it's just like there's no um, nobody is pushing this. I mean, the closest we have is Josh Hawley, who called for elevated antitrust scrutiny as part of the pandemic. So so part of it is that like there's a giant PR campaign by big tech, um, and there's a lot of jeering right now at at people like me because you know they get to they get to you know that's what they do. They're paid to do that. But I don't think it's like a I don't think it's like a lasting, like fundamental change in public opinion. I do, however, think that we have a really serious political problem, and the collapse of the sort of progressive side of the of of the the collapse of progressives in general in this last election has really weakened the anti-monopoly movement. Although, if you know, I am seeing signs that the right is getting more and more interested in this problem, and if that's the case, and I hope it is. Um, then I, I do think that the, you know, these guys are are not the technology. The technology is awesome. I think that being able to get on Google and search for anything is awesome. But the underlying, um, you know, business models and political models of these guys, I think that's with a more active state that, that they're going to be in trouble. Certainly interesting. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Wanted to give you all a thank you to our many loyal listeners. We mentioned in that previous episode, podcast listening overall is down since nobody's commuting anymore, but the realignment's numbers continue to go up. So thank you guys for that. So please keep sharing the podcast with friends and family and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate us five stars on Apple. And just a reminder, we make excellent cooking companions. So even though there is a shortage of flour in this country, there is not a shortage of episodes of the realignment. We're going to keep at it. And we'll see you next week.